the old pilot's plain tales. Mutiny. Air law is something that all pilots must have some knowledge of, or they wouldn't be awarded a license or a certificate. It's required. Having said that, it's a long way from being simple, and even a qualified air transport pilot will only have scratched the surface, yours truly included. So take what I say here with these caveats. The air laws that affect you depend on many factors. For example, the country your airline is based in the country your aircraft is registered in, the country it is actually in, and in the past, even the country you were flying over at the time. The law also depends on what conventions those countries are signatories to, because there are many. Air law pretty much kicked off when man first took to the air, in a balloon, mind you, as air-cushioned vehicles are not regarded as aircraft by the International Civil Aviation Organization. The laws of the Romans in the maxim, who owns the land owns even to the skies, and other ancient laws generally granted the landowner all rights to the air above and the earth below. Had this continued, flight just about anywhere would have been extremely expensive, as was demonstrated following the first few flights by the Montgolfier brothers and other early balloonists, who were tried in common law several times for overflying land that didn't belong to them. The first law specifically pertaining to aircraft was enacted in Paris in 1784 and was an ordinance of one Lenore, a lieutenant de police in Paris, prohibiting balloon flights without special permits. This was quickly followed by similar enactments in Namur and Hamburg. The first regulation for safety in air navigation was made in 1819 by Count d'Anglis, a police prefect of the scene department, requiring balloons to be equipped with parachutes and prohibiting aeronautic experiments during the harvest. I'm assuming that the parachutes were to be worn by the balloonists and not the balloon. Even back in 1819, people realized how risky ballooning was. In 1908, the Council of Kissimmee City in Florida enacted the first air traffic regulation, which stated that the airspace subject to the legal control of the city extended upwards to a limit of 20 miles. The first customs regulations for aviation were brought in in 1909 by the French Prime Minister, imposing duties on balloons from abroad, and this is when international laws kicked off. In January 1822, the first case of a tort committed by an aviator was decided by the New York Supreme Court. A balloonist had made a forced descent upon the plaintiff's land and attracted large crowds who trespassed thereon and caused damage. It was held that the defendant was liable in trespass. With these worrisome balloonists going around causing trouble, a uniform set of international laws were obviously needed and there followed a tedious number of conventions, starting in Paris with the 1919 one and followed by many others. A biggie was the Chicago Convention in International Civil Aviation in 1944, when it was decided that airspace was an appurtenance of, associated with, the subject territory and shares the latter's legal status. However, like the high seas, airspace over the oceans should be free up to the limits of outer space. 
the Chicago Convention also laid down the tedious requirement for the pilot of every aircraft and the other members of the operating crew of every aircraft engaged in international navigation shall be provided with certificates of competency and licenses issued or rendered valid by the state in which the aircraft is registered and there shall be maintained in respect of every aircraft engaged in international navigation a journey logbook in which shall be entered particulars of the aircraft, its crew, and of each journey. Most of this was actually maritime law, with maritime crossed out and aviation penciled in. Now we come to the crunch part for those of you who like to get drunk on an airliner and scream at the crew. For a long time, the failure of states to extend their criminal laws to their aircraft whilst they were outside national territory posed a serious problem. When a crime has been committed on an international flight, things got complicated. It wasn't until 1963 that the Tokyo Convention on Offences and certain other acts committed on board aircraft that things were settled. Contracting states were obliged to extend their criminal law and jurisdiction to aircraft of their registry when they were outside national territory. The convention, furthermore, gives the aircraft commander power to ensure law and order on board his aircraft and to disembark any offender in any contracting state in which the aircraft lands. Initially, illegal acts against an aircraft, for example seizing it, were treated like piracy, but walking the plank or hanging from the yardarm was a problem on an aircraft, so we got our own thing, hijacking. It became the responsibility of the state in which the aircraft lands to take all appropriate measures to restore control of an aircraft hijacked in flight to its lawful commander. What's more, the commander of an aircraft now has final authority as to the disposition of the aircraft while in command. This specifically empowers the commander to override any other regulation in an emergency. This provision mirrors the authority given to the captains of ships at sea with similar justifications. It essentially gives the commander the final authority in any situation involving the safety of a flight irrespective of any other law or regulation. After the dust has settled, however, there better be a reasonable explanation ready at hand. In the military, one might have assumed that things would have been pretty tight and mutiny unheard of. Let me set you straight there. There are a few that I know of, so let's start with the U.S. Army Signal Corps Pilot Revolt of 1915. It was the early days of fixed-wing aviation in the U.S. Army, and the story revolves around the court-martial of Judge Advocate Lieutenant Colonel Goodyear. The Signal Corps had taken an interest in ballooning and then fixed-wing, with the purchase of some right military flyers, and later some air machines from Glenn Curtis. The manufacturers initially provided flight instruction for officers, but Army policy only allowed them to be detached from their primary job for four years, at the end of which they had to return to their infantry, cavalry, artillery or whatever. This Manchu law, as it was known, made it very difficult to develop a pilot force with long-term flying expertise. Additionally, much angst developed amongst the pilots over the administration of flight pay, seen as a form of hazardous duty pay, given that one in four pilots were being killed in aircraft accidents. 
An unhealthy competition soon grew between pilots trained in Wright aircraft versus those trained in Curtis ones. Aircraft accidents, sometimes fatal, generated blame between the two camps. To add to the problems, the Brigadier General moved all flight training operations to North Island, California, and established a new Signal Corps flying school under a Captain Arthur Cowan. Cowan was a signals officer who had absolutely no knowledge of aviation operations whatsoever. Problems with his junior pilots soon arose. Cowan would accuse his lieutenants of unauthorised stunting when accomplishing a simple go-around or flying dangerously over hangars when sitting up for a landing. Often he singled out particular junior pilots as targets of his ire. He also opposed requests for experiments with firing machine guns or dropping bombs from aircraft. Cowan even mismanaged his budgets for spare parts and then blamed his subordinates for not keeping the aircraft airworthy. After a few years of such mistreatment, the young officers discovered that Cowan had been drawing flight pay without being a pilot. Several junior pilots drew up charges against him and took them to Judge Advocate Lieutenant Colonel Goodyear. Cowan's connections at Signal Corps headquarters ensured that the charges would be dropped and then the Signal Corps leaders charged the Judge Advocate with inappropriately advising the lieutenants. Prosecutors then made the mistake of asking the young pilot witnesses open-ended questions that allowed them to expose Cowan's poor leadership and the Signal Corps' mismanagement. The press and Congress had a field day. Goodyear was merely reprimanded and an inspector general soon exposed the flight school's shortcomings. The resulting National Defence Act of 1916 created an environment that properly prepared an air service for action in the First World War and prevented the United States Air Force from still being called the U.S. Signal Corps Aviation Balloon and Airplane Flying Division thing. A more serious subject was the 1945 Freeman Field Mutiny at Freeman Army Airfield, a base near Seymour, Indiana. Before and during the Second World War, the U.S. military, like much of American society, was segregated by race. But in response to pressure from leaders such as Philip Randolph and Walter White, President Roosevelt opened the Air Corps to black men, who volunteered to become fighter pilots. The story of the Tuskegee Airmen should be well known to us all by now. But other units were also formed, such as the 477th Bombardment Group flying B-25 Mitchells. With only 175 officer crew members, they were badly undermanned, and some believe that the Army were holding the unit back from full combat readiness. Segregation was a major source of poor morale, as the commander of the 1st Air Force, despite regulations to the contrary, insisted on strict social segregation of black and white officers. The officers' clubs were supposed to be open to all officers, regardless of race, but the club at Selfridge was closed to black officers, a situation that led to an official War Department reprimand being issued to the Selfridge base commander. The 477th were abruptly moved to Goodman Field at Fort Knox, where the officers' club was open to blacks. Not that it made them feel any better, as the white officers had moved to the club at Fort Knox instead, as it was restricted to only those with guest memberships. Now at full strength, a return to Freeman Base was ordered, 
and it became apparent that there were now two officers' clubs on the base. Number one for trainees, all of whom were black, and number two for instructors, all of whom were white. Second Lieutenant Coleman Young, the future mayor of Detroit, decided to challenge the segregation, and with a group of black officers entered the number two club to seek service. They were turned away, and the armed officer of the day was posted at the door to prevent entry to the black officers. When 19 black officers of the 477th returned, they were arrested and confined to quarters, as were another 17 later. The next night, another 25 officers were arrested during a two-day protest. In the end, a total of 61 serving officers, all black, were charged. A regulation was drawn up, and all the officers of the 477th were told to read and sign it, acknowledging the requirement to stay away from the instructor's club. They were ordered to read and sign or face arrest under the 64th Article of War for disobeying a direct order by a superior officer in time of war, an offence that technically could be punished by death. In the end, 101 men were arrested for failing to sign. Pressure from Congress, labor unions and African-American organization was brought to bear on the War Department and finally the Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, ordered the men released. Three officers accused of shoving the officer of the day received general courts martial, and although two were acquitted, the third, second lieutenant Roger Terry, was fined $150, suffered a loss of rank, and was dishonorably discharged. Three years later, President Harry S. Truman issued Executive Order 9981, racially integrating the United States Armed Services. In 1995, in response to requests from veterans of the 477th, the Air Force officially removed letters of reprimand from the permanent files of 15 of the 104 officers charged in the Freeman Field protest and promised to remove the remaining 89 letters when requests were filed. Roger Terry received a full pardon, restoration of rank and a refund of his fine. A year later, it was the Royal Air Force's turn to suffer the ignominy of a mutiny. At the end of the Second World War, the slow progress of demobilization was a major problem for the armed services, particularly for those who had been pressed into service. They wanted to return to their civilian lives and find decent jobs before the thousands who were returning ahead of them filled the few vacancies. The return to civilian life depended on a demob number based on the length of service, and for many, particularly those serving abroad, it meant a long wait. As the months dragged on, with rumours of transport being used to move G.I. brides to America, whilst the RAF men sat in Karachi waiting in vain, they began to hold secret meetings on the football pitch in the dark. They voted for a leader to take their grievances to the commanding officer. The mutiny started, mildly enough, as a protest by refusing to prepare kit for inspection and go on parade in casual khaki drill rather than best blues. There is no doubt that men held away from friends and family in pretty dismal conditions, heat, flies and poor food, when the war was over, had pretty low morale, 
and this was a small protest. On the next parade, as the mutineers spread around the parade ground in their khakis, the CO came and started to speak to them and listen to their complaints. He promised to take their messages higher. Eventually, a delegation were selected to meet the Air Commodore from Delhi, who listened and then agreed to meet nearly every problem that the men brought up. A petition pleading for faster demobilization was sent to the Prime Minister. Food and accommodation were improved and many of the tedious drills and parades cancelled. The men at Karachi were content, but news of their rebellion had spread and at the height of the strike, nearly 50,000 men at over 60 RAF stations in India, Ceylon, and as far away as Singapore stopped obeying orders. Although some of the ringleaders at other stations faced courts martial, the unrest was ultimately quelled, mainly through negotiation. The men had fought a war and they wanted to go home. Everybody understood. However, the precedent set instigated subsequent actions by both the Royal Indian Air Force and Navy when 78 out of 88 ships mutinied. The Viceroy of India commented at the time, I am afraid that the example of the Royal Air Force, who got away with what was really a mutiny, has some responsibility for the present situation. At its height, the 1946 Royal Air Force strike extended beyond Southeast Asia, through the Middle East to Egypt and North Africa, even as far as Gibraltar. However, in all cases, the mutinies remained peaceful. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. If you want to find out more, go to AirlinePilotGuy.com. Plane Tales is also its own podcast. So if you'd like to help us out, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And if you love Plane Tales, perhaps your friends would too.